happy with the progress. And I'll talk more about uh, how God has really used this in my life um, on, in the first uh, part of this passage. As you know, we we're in, as Jared said, as we were in worship this morning, we're journeying our way through the book of Ephesians. And the book of Ephesians is what is, how does the nature and purpose of the local church, what is the nature and purpose of this body in particular, and then the, the overall body of the church. And we've been looking at that, and we called it ecclesia, and the word ecclesia means called out, that God himself has called out a people for himself to take his gospel message to the world. And in taking the gospel message to the world, that he would receive all the honor and all the glory. And we are in uh, finishing chapter 3 this morning. Uh, we've looked at uh, really how God calls them out. He had a purpose and a plan for that. We saw that in chapter 1, that God chose us from the foundations of the world uh, for us to be a church for his glory. This morning we're going to look at Paul's prayer again. And Paul ends his prayer, and then at the rest of this is the application. So uh, he has been setting us up this first half of the book for the application, and then here in chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, is the application. It may seem odd that there's a benediction. The benediction is verses 20 and 21. A benediction comes at the end of something, and yet here Paul puts the benediction dead smack in the middle of the book, which says to us, this part of the, the book is coming to a close, and he's opening a door for the rest of the book. And the rest of the book is the application of chapter 1, 2, and 3. And so here we are, here in chapter 1. And what Paul is going to show us, he's going to get back to verse, uh, to the first chapter. Remember, a few weeks ago, Brother Frank was here, and Brother Frank talked to us about Paul began his letter with a salutation, and then he goes into a prayer. Like the first part of chapter 1 is a, is a prayer. And then all of a sudden, in chapter 1, 2, and now up until this point, 3, he kind of gets derailed from his prayer. Anyone ever done that, had a prayer life, and you start praying one thing, and all of a sudden, man, you're like the birds, the flowers, the chipmunk, am I the only one? Like if, you, if you don't think you have ADD, just start praying. You'll know if you have ADD through your prayer life. Well, here Paul gets back to his prayer, right? He's starting to pray for the church, and all of a sudden, he's got this conviction to talk about how that happened. And then all of a sudden, he comes back to that prayer, and he says this in chapter in chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. So he's back to his prayer. And he's going to tell us, hey, you want to know how to pray? Here's three things that we, the church, need to pray for as we go into the application. And so if you want to know how to pray, if you want to not get distracted in your prayer life, I guarantee this is going to be a formula for you or an outline. If you stick to this outline in your prayer life, you will not become distracted. Because most of us get distracted because we start with prayer and, and we just kind of shotgun approach it. Well, Paul's going to say, hey, don't take a shotgun approach to prayer. Take, take a poignant position in your prayer life. And he's going to pray for the strengthening of the body. And if all you do and all I do for the rest of our lives is pray for strength for the body, we will never get sidetracked. He's going to tell us three things to pray for. The first one is strength, right? He says this, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Lord. We can kind of glance over that first few words. He bows his knees. 
Like, I think we have this idea, the posture of prayer is to bow our knees. That wasn't true for Paul. That wasn't true for Jewish people. How do you know that? Go over to Israel. Jewish people, historically, when they pray, they pray standing up. Have you ever seen the men at the Wailing Wall? You, don't, you will never see a Jewish man wailing at the wall in a bent posture. And so we can just kind of skip over this passage. Uh, well, what, what, is, what does Paul say he's on bended knee for? Well, Paul is saying, I have this passion. When the men of the Old Testament, when the men of the New Testament, when Jewish people prayed and they bent before the Lord, there was this great passion that was coming out of them. Think about how Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Was he not bowing before the Lord? In anguish, he had this passion, and the passion was, God, take this cup from me, let, but not my will be done, but your will be done. That's right moments before the cross. And so there's this passionate moment for Paul in this prayer. And he's praying desperately to the God of the universe for these three things. So he bends his knee, and look how he addresses who he's praying to. He doesn't pray to God Almighty. He doesn't pray to Yahweh. He, he doesn't pray to, who's he pray to? What's it say in the text? To the Father. So he's praying to this intimate relationship that he has with God. Like he addresses God as Father. So there's this passionate moment with an intimate relationship with his Father. So he has this relationship that's close. And what does he pray for? He prays this. From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That according to the riches of his glory, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. The first thing that Paul prays for is what? Strength. For strength. The thing that Paul starts his prayer to his father for us, the church, is strength. I wonder why. What do we pray for when we begin to pray for sick people? For healing or for strength. And so Paul knows that we're going to go through a lot of struggles and our inward self is going to be downtrodden. Anyone experience that? Man, I know for me, this past two, three and a half weeks when I got the news about my eye, man, my spirit was crushed anyone ever been there you get news or something happens and you, man you just want to fall completely to pieces I, I told the group on Wednesday night this I was when I got the first diagnosis about my eye the young the, the lady came in the doctor came in she began to tell me what was going on and, and it was like a punch in the stomach and I wanted to cry and I couldn't cry anyone ever been there before like, I wanted to ask questions, but I didn't know the, the right questions to ask, and I just kind of sat there dumbfounded. Anyone been there? Like, I wasn't questioning God in that moment. I was just questioning life itself. And I remember getting on the phone with Jenny, keeping it together as best I could. And then I got on the phone with one of my dearest friends, and I completely lost it. Anyone ever done that before? Like, you know it's coming, you feel it's coming, you're just wondering when it's going to come. Well, it's never good to be on the highway in Nashville to begin with. It's not good to be on the highway in Nashville with your eyes dilated. Second, 
And third, it's not good to be in Nashville with your eye dilated crying. Well, that's where I found myself on 24. But I wasn't concerned about the traffic. I wasn't concerned about who was going to hit me. I was simply concerned of like, man, where's my strength going to come from? Like, God, how am I going to do this? How am I going to make it through, God? And that's where Paul starts. Paul starts with the prayer because he knows that we're going to be, we're, we're going to get punched in the stomach. And so he prays that we would find strength. And he, then he prays two ways. He says, I, this is where your strength's going to come from, and this is how it's going to get delivered. And so he says in the first part of that verse, I pray for strength according to what? The riches. The riches of his glory, his being God, that he may grant you strength. So according to God's riches, I pray that you would get strength. We talked about this several weeks ago. That God is, he has, he's infinite in his riches. There's no end to his riches. Like, like the richest people in the world, you think about Bill Gates. There's an end to his riches, is there not? Not for us, the average Joe, like, man, give me $53 billion. There'll be never an end to that. But there will be, if I wanted to, if Bill Gates wanted to, he could spend all of his money and come to an end of it. But this word riches means that there's no end to what God wants to give his children. Like, you can go to God over and over and over and over again for the strength that he has, that he wants to give to you, and it will never come to an end. Do we believe that? I don't think so. I think we intellectually believe it, but I don't think we believe it in our hearts. Because there's moments that we come and we come and we come and we come to God and we get to these places that we don't see God coming through and then what? We get dependent on ourselves. And we take life into our own hands. Anyone ever done that before? Because we would say we believe in the riches of God. But when he doesn't pour out his riches the way we would ask him to pour out his riches, we take life into our own hand. And that's when chaos happens. And so Paul says, I pray that you would first know the riches of God, that he would grant you all the strength so that you wouldn't take it into your own hands. And how does that strength, do those riches get delivered to us? Strengthened with power through what? His spirit. So God wants to bless us with all the heavenly blessings. We read that in Ephesians 1. He wants to lavish us with his grace and his mercy and his love and his kindness and strengthen us to no end. And the avenue that it comes through is what? His Holy Spirit. You see, when you come to know Jesus, in the moment of your conversion, in the moment of your salvation, you and I are given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit is the one that continues to flow God's gracious gifts to us and I just wonder for us like I pray to God and I pray to Jesus but how often do I pray directly to the Holy Spirit like he's like the stepchild sometimes in my prayer life anyone relate to that like there's God and there's Jesus and then there's like oh yeah there, there's the Holy Spirit well they're three in one they're all equal and they all have unique places in our lives but the one place and the one area in my life that gets neglected is the work of the Holy Spirit. 
Now, I'm not saying I want to be a charismatic. Uh, you'll never see me flail on the ground. You, you, that won't happen. I'm a charismatic with a seatbelt on. But, but I do want to experience the Holy Spirit in my life because if I experience the Holy Spirit in my life, then the riches of God are going to be lavished onto me and onto us. So the first thing that Paul prays for is that there would be strength, the riches of God through his Holy Spirit. And then he says this, for your inner being, that, that, that place where you place your will, your faith, your trust in Jesus Christ. And then he says this, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being what? Rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the width, the height, and the depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So he first prays for strength. And then what does he pray for? That we'd understand God's love. So he's going to pray that we have strength and he's going to pray that we have love. And where does he pray for? He prays that our love is two things. is rooted and grounded. Well, you may be thinking, why would he use those two words? Well, think about the word rooted. The word rooted is an agricultural term. So when you have a tree and you plant a tree, what, what are you hoping for the tree? That the tree will what take root? Because what happens if a tree doesn't take root? It dies. And so he says, I, I pray that your love will be rooted, that it will take root. Here's what one theologian said about this idea of being rooted, that the rooting of God's love never comes to an end until the grave. So are we ongoing, growing in our love for God? And in a moment, we'll see that our love for God translates into a love for the body. And I wonder how many of us are beginning to wither in our love for God. Like you, when you prayed your prayer and you came to salvation, you were planted. But I just wonder, have we ever taken root in the love of God? You, you've seen those trees that don't make it, right? Someone plants it, and they water it, and what happens if they don't take root? They die. And I wonder for us, the church, how many of us have been planted, but the root has never grown? And I wonder if it circles back around to the strength part. Because I don't know about your experience, but my experience when I came to Jesus, my life got a lot harder. Anyone relate to that? Like, man, coming to, I, I came to Christ at 18, and I went my first day, Monday, back to school. I sat down at the lunch table. I started telling my friends that I had come to know Jesus that, that, um, that Saturday night. And one by one, at the lunch table, they got up and left. And I remember looking at my buddy, Court, who led me to the Lord, and I said, Court, you didn't tell me this part of the story. I don't know if I would have done that if you had told me this part of the story. And as I look over the last years of my life, life has become more and more difficult when it comes to walking with Jesus. There's been more and more temptation. There's been more and more struggle. There's been more and more attacks. There's been more and more, you name it. Anyone else? Why? Because once I come to know Jesus, then the attack from Satan's really on. There's no need to attack me when I'm part of his team already, pre-Christ, is there? 
So I come to know Christ, and life gets difficult. Jesus says that in the Gospels. Count it all costs, my brother. Like, does, does someone that builds a tower not count the cost all the way to the end? He's saying it's going to be difficult. The one thing that we know to be promises of Jesus is this. You will be persecuted. And so, if our love is not grounded in God, and we don't have strength from God, we will wither. So Paul is saying to us, I pray that you have strength, and I pray that you're grounded or rooted. And he says, I pray that you're grounded. What does that word mean? That, that's a word that you would use in architecture. If this place did not have a solid foundation or a solid grounding, what would happen to this building? It would crash. And so he says, I pray that your, their love for God takes root, and as that takes root, I pray that your foundation is strengthened. And I wonder for us, have we taken root, but we have no grounding? Grounding comes through knowing the word of God. This is our only firm foundation, amen? And are we living our lives as this is our foundation? Or some self-help book, our foundation? Some song, our foundation? Some TV show, our foundation? Our spouse, our foundation? Our kids, our foundation? Our job, our foundation? Our money, our foundation? Or is the word of God our foundation? Because anything other than this, and you building your life on this, your life will fall completely to pieces. So Paul says, I pray your love for God grows and your foundation of love grows so that you won't fall apart when the persecution comes. And then he says this about the love of God. One of the most famous verses in all of the Bible, especially here in Ephesians. He says this about the love of God, four things. And he says this. Grounded in love, that you may be strengthened to comprehend with all the saints what the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ. So why would Paul use those four words? They're not just repetitive words. I believe these four words mean these four things. The breadth of God's love. Have you thought about the breadth of God's love? It just means how wide it is. How wide God's love is for all of God's people. We see how wide God's love is in John 3.16. God's love is so wide, he says this in John 3.16, it covers the world. Do we believe that? Do we believe that the love of God covers all of humanity? Do we believe that? And then he says this about the length of God. I I believe this, the length of God. You know, when you and I think of length, we think it's a starting point and an ending point. But there is no length with God. There's no starting point and there is no ending point with God and God's love. We see that in 1 Corinthians 13. God's love is what? Everlasting. It goes on and on and on and on and on. Charles Spurgeon, the great theologian, says it this way. He says, it is so long that our old age cannot wear it out. I love that. So long your continual tribulation cannot exhaust it. Your temptation shall not drain dry of it. Like eternity itself, God's love has no bounds. Do we believe that? 
Do we believe the love of God has no bounds? Then he says this third word, the height of God's love. Think about that word, height, how high it goes. The height of God's love. I believe this, the height of God's love takes every sinner who's repentant into the throne room of God's grace. That's the love of God. That's the height of God. It takes us, the sinner who repents of our sins, places our hope and faith into God. Without God's love, God's love, without that love, there's no way to get to heaven. So the height of God's love takes us all the way to the throne room of God's grace. Amen? And then lastly, he says this word. The depth of God's love. The depth of God's love is God coming down to us. Think about when God pulled on skin, how far he had to descend to get to us. I mean, he gave up all of it in heaven. And so his love is so deep that he gave it all up to come and rescue sinners. And so Paul says, I pray that you'll be reminded of the love of God. How big it is, how grand it is, how high it is, how wide it is, how long it is. I pray that you'll never forget that. And then he says this, to know the love of God that surpasses knowledge. And then he circles back around. He says that you, being rooted in love, may be strengthened with all the saints. He says, so I hope that you will be strengthened by the love of God so you'll know the love of God so that with all the saints you'll know the love of God. That's why this new age, this, which drives me absolutely crazy. I don't know how you can say you go to church when you watch church on a computer screen. That's not, that's not being a part of the family of God. That's just watching a, a televangelist. God's design for the church is that we'd all know and love God and then that we'd come here and that we would love one another. He says it this way in John. The world will know you're my disciples by what? The way you love one another. Well, you can't love one another on a computer screen. Love takes root when we do life together. I need you and you need me to experience the fullness of the love of God. That's the reason we do Sunday school. That's the reason we do worship. That's the, all the things that we do is that we come together to experience the love of God together. God never meant for us, the church, to live in utter isolation. He tells us that in Corinthians, that we're all one body, and we must work together as a body. We must come together, and the coming together, the, the, the thing that holds us together, our ligaments, our muscle, is the love of God and the way we love God one another. So Paul says, I pray for strength for you, and I pray that you love God, and I pray that you would love one another. So I wonder, church, how well are we doing at loving one another? I wonder, do we tolerate one another? Or do we love one another? Because you can go through Corinthians 13. You want to know if you love the people of God, there's your checklist. And can you and I say, love is. Take the word love out and insert your name. Am I patient? Am I kind? All the things that it says love is. 
And then he says this. Before I go there, I want to read one quote from A.W. Tozer. A.W. Tozer was a, a great theologian. He wrote this amazing book. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. It's a small book, but it's called The Knowledge of the Holy. And the book Knowledge of the Holy is all the attributes of God. And his first line in the book, I've said it and quoted it here before, it says, the thing that comes to your mind first when you think of God is the most important thing about you. And then he goes through the rest of the book, I believe it's some 20 chapters, about the, some of the, just some of the characteristics of God. Well, this is what he says about the love of God. He says, because God is self-existent, his love has no beginning. Because he is eternal, his love has no end. Because he is infinite, it has no limits. Because he is holy, it is spotless and pure. Because it, he, his love is immense, it is incomprehensible, vast, bottomless, and is like a sea without a seashore. Think about that when you think about the love of God. Does that not overwhelm us for gratitude? Does that not overwhelm us for worship? The love of God. And then he prays this. His last prayer is this. He says in verse 19, And to know the love of God that surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled with all what? The fullness of God. So he prays for our strength. He prays for our love. And lastly, he prays for our fullness of God. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about being full of God, my mind just kind of goes, because there's no limits with God, which means I can never really be full with God. Like, it's going to be this ongoing, ongoing knowledge of God, and that word knowledge doesn't just mean intellectual knowledge. There's a lot of people, one guy that just passed away, uh, Stephen Hawkins, he had the knowledge of God. Like, I guarantee, if he came in here and he, we started talking to him about his thoughts on God, he would blow all of us out of the water with his knowledge of God. But he would tell you he is an atheist. I, I want to make this joke, I'll make it. He's no longer an atheist. He met God this week. So he can no longer say he's an atheist. He met the Holy of Holies. And he would tell you, I know all about God. But he never had a personal experience with God. Knowledge is not what this word is talking about. What Paul hopes and what Paul is praying for is that our knowledge, our, our experience with God would take root. You see, I can know about something all day. I, I can know how a car works. I can know how an engine works. I can know how gas goes into the car. I can know it all. But until I get my butt into the car and turn the ignition, my knowledge isn't going to take me anywhere, is it? It's my faith and hope that that car is going to move with what I know to be true. And I just wonder for us, church, are we sitting on the sidelines, filling our minds with the things of God, rather than taking the things of God and going and living experientially with them? Because here's how I'd say this. We all know, right, that the only way to come to Christ Jesus is for someone to hear the message. Amen? Well, we all know that. So the challenge for me is, and the challenge for you is, I know that, but am I putting that into practice? It's not my job 
as the pastor to make sure every man, woman, and child in this neighborhood hears and sees and experiences the love of God. That is your job just as much as it is my job. And so I would say to you, you have the knowledge that people need to hear the word of God, but have you taken the experience and you personally sharing the knowledge with another human being? See, that's what Paul's praying for, that you would experience the strength of God, that you would experience the love of God, and through that you would experience your knowledge of God, and that would compel you into your neighborhoods to share the great gospel message with the people who have yet to hear about the goodness of God. So that's what Paul says. And it starts with us being full of God. Are you full of God this morning? Like, or is he just a side dish for you? Like, is he just a, a plate of beans? Are you full of Christ Jesus this morning? And again, the way to be full of Christ Jesus is through this book and this book alone. Like, are you devouring this book? Can you get enough of this book? Can you read enough? Can you meditate on this enough? Can you think about this enough? Because in this book is the fullness of who God is. This is our way to know who God is. His word and his word alone. And then... He ends it with the benediction. And he says this, after his prayer, first people. He says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all the generations forever and ever. What I believe that Paul is saying in this passage is, God wants to and desires to fill us with strength, fill us with love, and fill us with the knowledge of him. And it goes beyond what you and I could ever comprehend. Like God's desires that he would just pour it all out to us and that it would expand our minds and expand our hearts to a place that we couldn't even dream or imagine. I think for me, over these last three, four weeks, that God has done this. But the way that God does this, the way that God strengthens us, the way that we learn of our love of God, and the way that we grow in our fullness of Him, I, I believe it comes out of the book of Habakkuk. Like there's this, the book of Habakkuk is a painful, painful book. I would encourage you to read that. Turn with me to Habakkuk. So the first four verses are Habakkuk's complaint, his cry out to God. How long shall I cry out for help? And how long will you not hear me? I'll cry to you about this and I'll cry to you about that. And over and over he's pleading with God. And then he says this, God answers him. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astonished. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. God's doing this work. 
I believe God's doing a work here. But if you read the rest of Habakkuk, there's a great book. It's probably Jenny's favorite book. It's called Hind, Hind's Feet on High Places. And it's just an analogous story through the book of Habakkuk. And so there's this person in the book, and uh, her, I, I believe her name is Sorrow. Uh, and she goes to the great shepherd. She's talking to the great shepherd about her, her struggle and what's going on in her life. And the great shepherd says, hey, I, I won't be able to go on this whole journey with you. And in that moment, she gets distraught and she gets frustrated and she gets overwhelmed. And he says, but I promise I won't leave you. I'm going to send two companions with you. And these two companions will go your whole journey to where I want to do in your life. So she begins to talk to the great shepherd, and the great shepherd brings out her two companions. You know the name of her two companions? Pain and sorrow. I think for me in these moments, in these last few weeks, man, it's been painful. There's been sorrowful moments. But on this side of it, and I'm still going through it, like there's still no guarantee I'll be able to see and see clearly in a week or three weeks or a month or two years. That, that's not clear. Like I could have had that surgery and at the end of it I could ju- be just as blurry, if not worse, than I am today. And then she told me, the lady said, oh, and it's bilateral, so if it's in your right eye, it's definitely going to be in your left eye, so we're going to have to do this again uh, in a year or so. Oh, that's great news, lady. And she said, if this doesn't take, then we'll have to do double cornea transplants. And she said, at your age, you don't want to do that. And I told the guys and the ladies Wednesday night, all of a sudden, that, those moments of playing football and playing catch with Cedar, like just poof. Like, man, I may never do that. Seeing tennis and walk down an aisle with a white dress, I may, may never see that. Holding a grandkid, I may never see it. But what God began to do in my heart on a Friday night after the surgery is the most pain I've ever been in in my life. I just began to cry out to God in ways I'd never cried out to Him before. You know those moments? Like, it's really through the sorrowful parts and the painful parts of life that, man, I get desperate for God. Anyone else relate to that? And all through the moments, God was strengthening me. God was filling me with his love, and he was filling me with his knowledge. And I don't wish that pain that Friday night on anyone in the building. But, man, the sweetness of my time with the Lord from 7 p.m. to 4 a.m. of just pleading with God, I would give that away to all of you in a heartbeat. You see, I believe with all my heart that we, the church, we must allow sorrow and pain to be our companions. We must. Now, that's not encouraging. That's not, you're not going to find that on a Hallmark card, but you'll find that throughout the Bible. I believe that we experience sorrow, and we experience pain, we will be strengthened. And in our strength, we'll come along one another. We'll come alongside of one another. 
and we'll walk and we'll journey through those painful parts one another. And we'll experience the love of God through the way that we love each other through our pain. And then the fullness of God we will experience because God's riches will pour out on us in a way we've never had them pour out because we finally become dependent on Him and not of ourselves. And then we can all say the benediction that to whom is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him, God be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. The application is this this morning. Are you running from sorrow? Are you running from pain? If you are, this morning is the place and the moment to stop and allow God to do what he's doing through pain. God, for us here at Powell's Chapel, individually, corporately, that we have been in the refiner's fire. I can look out on the landscape of the body this morning and see story after story of the pain and the sorrow. I pray that we would embrace that, Lord Jesus. that therefore, God, as we embrace it, we would embrace one another. We'd love one another. We'd care for one another. When we journey along these painful places in each other's lives, we'd encourage each other with the truths of God. I do pray, God, as the pastor of this church, that you would strengthen us. That we'd comprehend your love. part to pray, God, is that you would do it however you see fit. That we'd embrace it. Because your ways are not our ways. Your thoughts are not your thoughts. But God, through the great promise, through all the pain and all the suffering and all the sorrow, you be the glory forever and ever. Amen. If you're here this morning, you